Welcome to STEM Fatale, your women in science history podcast. <laughs> I'm Emma Dilemma. And I'm Emlyn Gremlin. And we're back. We're back. It's been a long day. I had jury duty. I can't yep. talk about it. <laughs> well, why'd you bring it up? That's <laughs> <laughs> all that I did today. Yeah. Um, and that will explain why my brain is going to be partially functional during this yeah, episode. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I know. Who knows? <laughs> so let's just get into it because we yeah. don't have time to waste. Of course we're, not. We're busy women on this international, well, we're recording on International Women in Science Day. Yeah. But you will not receive this no. until just a normal ass day yeah but today is still exciting it is and let's just make it always international women in science I agree. day yeah so today is international <laughs> women in science day because it is always international yeah. women in science yeah day. yeah all right so um emma yes emlyn folic acid What's Ooh, it good for? For babies. <laughs> Do you know why it's good for babies? Oh, I know that if mothers don't have enough folic acid while they're pregnant, then the babies will have developmental problems. Do you know why that is? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll we'll get into that later. Okay. Oh, you're not going to tell me? <laughs> um, not yet. So I'm just going to get into it now. I'm because, curious. Yeah. Uh, so folic acid is used <laughs> for uh, synthesis of certain amino acids. Right. And um, for purines. Oh, yeah. And so DNA synthesis oh, can't happen unless you have enough right. folic acid. So okay. the reason it's important for... Uh, pregnant women is because they're having so many cell divisions yeah because they're making a little babe yeah that they need all of that folic acid to create all of that rna and dna right that makes sense so why would you not want folic acid if you have cancer yes <laughs> so okay. we're gonna talk about that's the most enthusiastic <laughs> response to cancer if you have cancer <laughs> We're gonna talk about okay, right? The queen I should of have known this because you like we were just talking. We were about just talking this. about it. I'm yeah, spacey too. Whatevs. Yeah. All right, the queen of chemotherapy. Ooh, you know who that is? Uh, I don't. It's Jane Cook Wright. Oh, I definitely know that name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, step out of it too for much, a second. Too much hype. <laughs> okay. You're in it too much. Okay. So Jane Cook Wright was born in Manhattan to Corin Cook, who was a public school teacher, and Louise Wright. And the Wright family was a medical family going back all the way to the Civil War. They were like a medical dynasty. Oh. Um, which is I think even more impressive because her paternal grandfather, um, Say, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. It's C E A H. 
Ketchum Wright was born into slavery. Oh, my God. Uh, but earned his medical degree at Mahari Medical College after the Civil War. Wow. So really quickly just... That's incredible. ...was able to succeed. Yeah. And uh, Jane's stepfather was the first African-American to graduate from Yale Medical College. Dang. And her uncle was a physician and the president of Mahari Medical College in Tennessee, which was the first medical college that... Like, the first African-American medical college. Wow. um, That was formed shortly after the Civil War. And then her father, Louise Wright was one of the first African-Americans to graduate from Harvard Medical School. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And was also a graduate of Mahari Medical College. Yeah. So big dynasty. Oh, yeah. (laughs) uh, That's really impressive. Yeah. And her father also throughout his career, we're going to talk a lot about her father because they worked together a lot. Yeah. Um, and then she kind of took on from there. But cool. her father fought racial injustice in the medical field throughout his career. Yeah, I'm sure. And he stated publicly, I don't know in what context, he said, <laughs> the American Medical Association has demonstrated as much interest in the health of the Negro as Hitler has in the health of the Jew. Oh. So pretty damning um, yeah. cr- criticism of the American Medical That's Association. That's true, though. Yeah. Um. Okay, so now we're going to get into a little bit more about Jane's life. So as a child, uh, Jane attended the Ethical Culture School, which is like very, um, I don't know, the Ethical Culture School seems very lofty. Yeah, it sounds like you'd have a lot of talks about whether or not you exist. (laughs) (laughs) It's just very uh, But it could also be like really... Um, intense too, yeah. like oh, ethical yeah. culture. Yeah. I don't um, know. And so, and then she went to the Fieldson School and graduated in 1938. And after that, she attended Smith College. Oh, nice. Which I think is an all women's yeah, school, it, right? It at least or used was, to be yeah. an all women's school. I don't know if it still is. And she wanted to pursue a career in art because she was a really oh. good painter. But then her dad was like, hey, hey. Hey, the dynasty. The dynasty. Don't forget about the dynasty. That's pretty funny. Um, and she didn't forget about the dynasty. <laughs> and, and so she never will. <laughs> she decided to study pre med yeah. instead, which was a good choice because she's epic. Yeah. And we'll know why <clears throat> soon. Yeah, it's more practical to you in yeah. terms of finances like it's great that you're good at watercolors but where's that dollar dollar bill uh how are you gonna pay my bills 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 bills. so after college uh jane earned a full scholarship to study medicine at new york medical college Mm. and graduated in an accelerated three-year program at the top of her class in 1945 and the she completed her surgical residency at Harlem Hospital and then at this time married David Jones, Ooh. who was an attorney who became the founder of an anti-poverty and job training organization for young African-Americans. Wow. So they were very kind of invested in the community and very yeah. driven to, you know, have whatever they were doing impact, have yeah, big, a big impact like on people. Yeah, it like they were really helping their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had two children together, two two ladies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Too late. <ladies. laughs> 
So then in 1949, after completing her residency, she joined her father at the Harlem Hospital Cancer Center, which he founded. And so I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about some experiences her father had that kind of lead up to how they yeah. uh, progress and do their research. So during World War One, her father had been a lieutenant at, in the medical corps. Corps? Corps. <laughs> he was the in the medical corps. corps. <laughs> All corpses are medical. Um, in the medical corps in France, and he'd suffered permanent lung damage from a poison gas attack. What? You know. That's terrible. Yeah. World War One. Yeah. Before we were like, please don't do that. But still, we're also now like, please don't do that. I know. And we're not going to get into that. Yeah. But then, so he had this, you know, interaction with, I think it was mustard gas, yeah. probably. And then during World War II, in 1942, a ship that was carrying both soldiers and large amounts, I guess, of nitrogen mustard gas, <gasps> this ship sank killing a bunch of the soldiers not just because the ship sank but also because uh the escaped poison gas the ones that didn't drown got killed by the poison gas that sounds horrific yeah so how this is this is coming back to cancer which actually i guess we haven't really talked about too much but um interestingly looking at the bodies of these soldiers when doctors looked at these bodies they found that they had reduced white blood cell counts. Oh, okay. And so usually, I mean, white blood cells are the first line of atten- uh, line of defense against like bacteria or virus infections. Yeah, so they're right. good. But if you have leukemia, what happens is that you have too many white blood cells and then yeah. you know, overdivide the whole problem with cancer. Yeah, when your cells have uncontrollable yeah, exactly. cell division. Yeah. So uh Louise Wright thought maybe mustard gas actually was reducing was the cause of this reduction in white blood cells yeah and could you use that to reduce cancerous white blood cells and cure leukemia oh i see yeah wow okay so from this like terrible ordeal they're like well maybe we can actually use in per like inject mustard gas (laughs) into people and have a good effect i mean honest like those sort of observations are so necessary mm-hmm. because you can't just do those experiments on people. I mean, we've done weird, <laughs> very bad things to people, but we yeah. should not just inject mustard gas mustard all gas. willy-nilly mm-hmm. see what happens. No, you should not. <laughs> but so this guy I'm interested in whether or not you could use chemicals to cure cancer. Oh, And okay. so this is... So mustard gas ends up being one of the first chemicals shown to have answer anti-cancer properties and was the beginning of this idea of chemotherapy. Yeah. So before that, it was pretty much if you wanted to cure cancer, it was surgical. So right. chemo- like removing a tumor. Exactly. Probably. You just yeah. cut it open, try to take the tumor out. Right. And then there was also radiation. Those were kind of the two options. Yeah. Okay. And radiation Which... is you what bombard it with. X-rays, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So chemotherapy is the use of chemicals to kill cancer cells, mostly by causing defects in the cell cycling and proliferation Mm -hmm. or inhibiting cancer cells from kind of spreading and dividing. Yeah. So uh, chemotherapy was a new development in the 1940s around this time when they started seeing this effect of mustard gas on uh, these soldiers. 
And it was, but it was still in the experimental stage and considered kind of a last resort for cancer treatment. Oh, so you know, if they did surgery on you and did radiation and you were still, you know, looking like you were going to die, then maybe they would just also inject you with some mustard gas and be like, "Oh my gosh, we'll see." It can't be worse than. It can't go uh, worse. That sounds pretty gruesome. Yeah, yeah. So at this time, most physicians regarded any attempts to cure cancer other than surgery or radiation to be pretty much a waste of time. Wow. So there wasn't much research going in to try to figure out if chemotherapy could work. And if it did, kind of what doses Mm -hmm. or, you know, what chemicals you should use. Yeah. It was just like, well, I guess we'll just like inject you with this. And then if you die, you die. You're going to die anyway. So it's not, not a great treatment. So uh, Jane and Louise Wright set out to study uh, chemotherapeutic agents in order to make chemotherapy more available and more a, a better treatment, that yeah. more tested to try to treat cancer patients. And they were the first ones to report the use of nitrogen mustard agents and folic acid antagonists oh. as cancer treatments. Wow. Okay. So as we were kind of talking about with folic acid, folic acid essentially, you know, allows you to produce these things that allow your cells to divide. Yeah. Um, And so what they were finding is that you can use folic acid antagonists, uh, which essentially bind to the folic acid receptor. Yeah. And blocks the folic acid from binding and creating the purines for RNA or DNA synthesis. Uh, which thereby effectively blocks cell division. And so because these tumor cells proliferate and divide faster than normal cells, uh, these drugs disproportionately affect tumorous cells. Wow. So, I mean, it's still, that's why your hair, you lose your hair because those are also fast growing. Yeah. And so when you block any type of cell division, that affects all of your fast growing cells. Yeah. So at this time, right tested multiple folic acid antagonists, but found the most successful was methotrexate. Never heard of it. Why not? And so in the, a seminal paper she wrote in 1951, uh, her and her father tested seven different folic acid antagonists and found that methotrexate caused significant improvements in cancer patients, cancer patients that were considered to have incurable types of cancer. Oh my god! So at that time, like blood cancer essentially yeah. you can't do you can't surgery on blood it, cancer right? you can't take out all your blood vessels or yeah you maybe blood like transfusion blood maybe transfusion? or something i don't know but essentially like a lot of those kind of more nebulous cancers right they kind of threw their hands up and thought there was no yeah cure for. cancers that are maybe like throughout your whole body exactly. rather than in yeah. this particular location yeah where they're not just a tumor that you can remove mm-hmm. so this work tested the long-term efficacy of also combination therapy so using radiation with chemotherapy right. showing that you get much better results when you do both. yeah makes sense and um methotrexate is still one of the main chemotherapy drugs used today wow so they found one of the you know if you've gotten chemotherapy it's probably uh methotrexate so it's it's saved um, 
millions of lives, like I would imagine. Is it like a generalist, I guess, in terms of cancers? So the, uh, it's used to treat breast cancer, leukemia, lung cancer, wow. osteosarcoma, and other types of cancer. That so is crazy. Pretty general. Yeah. 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 And so this discovery of me- uh, methotrexate has formed the basis of all modern chemotherapy research. That is amazing. So she really is the like yeah queen of chemotherapy nice so these new chemotherapy drugs and techniques uh in some of her research led to cancer remission in patients from a bunch of different cancers that at that time were Mm -hmm. considered incurable like lymphoma hodgkin's disease sarcoma which is cancer of like connective tissue which is also kind of like a nebulous it's not just yeah if all of your can if all of your uh connective tissue is cancerous, then you can't really just take it out. No, of course not. Chemotherapy. And uh, right around this time, referred to chemotherapy as the Cinderella of cancer research, (laughs) which is like... Did it lose its glass slipper? Or was it transformed into a princess by a fairy godmother? Was it... In disguise. So she's the fairy godmother of chemotherapy. She is. She is the fairy godmother of... <laughs> and chemotherapy is, princess. is the Cinderella <laughs> yeah. of cancer research. Is this a good metaphor? I don't know. But this is what she said. Yeah. Uh, because... So she said that because of its incredible potential of treating multiple types of cancer... <laughs> like that doesn't really explain the Cinderella. Yeah, I don't know how equivalency good. isn't quite. I'm not quite. And you're not sold on it yet. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll think about it. Some okay. more. <laughs> uh, she said of chemotherapy. Also, uh, there's lots of fun in exploring the unknown. There's no greater thrill than in having an experiment turn out in such a way that you make a positive contribution. So yeah. she was all about trying to, you know improve people's lives and yeah that's amazing so Wright really brought chemotherapy from this experimental phase into the mainstream as a effective cancer treatment mm-hmm. and unlike most cancer researchers at the time Wright and her father were among the first researchers to also test drugs both in tissue culture and in patients. Oh, wow. And then they would systematically document the correlation. So actually, like, so people were testing these drugs in mice. Um, And she was like, well, you don't know that the animal models are going to actually relate to how patients respond. And so she was actually looking at tissue cultures from patients and then how that patient responded to the drug and seeing if you could actually use their own kind of tissue cultures to make better inferences about what drugs that makes sense yeah yeah and she was able to successfully identify treatments for both breast cancer and skin cancer increasing the lifespan of skin cancer patients by like 10 years. Oh, my god! So even things that weren't curable, she could really... Um, she could like slow down how exactly. fast they were dividing. Exactly. Yeah. So her father died in 1952. And at that time, uh, Jane was appointed as the director of the Cancer Research Foundation at Harlem Hospital. Wow. And then became associate professor of surgical research and the director of cancer chemotherapy research at NYU Medical Center. That is a lot. Yeah. She- <laughs> That's a lot of responsibilities. <laughs> yeah. And I think she was like 
33 at the time. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> she, Jeez. Who who runs the world? Wow. Jane Jane Cook, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also in 1952, when she's getting all these positions, yeah, uh, Mademoiselle magazine oh. gave her an award called the Merit Award, like the most generic. Yeah, I guess that would be what like glamour today or Cosmo. Yeah, it's or kind something. of it was like for the smart young woman of yeah. the day. Vogue. Yeah, yeah. And she stated, I guess, in an article in the magazine uh, surrounding this reward. Award. <laughs> uh, my plans for the future are to continue seeking a cure for cancer, to be a good mother to my children, and a good wife to my husband. Oh, nice. She had it all. She had it all. It's possible. <laughs> um, if that is the three things you want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then during these years, she also turned to personalized medicine. She's kind of one of the... Um, founders of this idea of personalized medicine wow. which we i didn't is, even know people were talking about yeah that exactly so, so this kind of goes back to how she was comparing um tissue cultures that, yeah and how they responded to a drug with how patients responded to a drug so what she started doing was she was pioneering efforts to study the effects of drugs uh, on tumor cells in vitro as i was saying before yeah but then she also would take these she would take biopsies of a patient's tumor and culture these cells in the lab. Right. And then once these cells were cultured and were proliferating, she would test their growth and survival um, using a variety of different chemotherapy drugs. Yeah. So she would like make a bunch of plates of all of the patient's tumor cells that are growing, hit oh it with a bunch gosh. of different drugs and figure out which drugs minimize the growth of the tumor cells. Wow. And then that would be how she would pick what drugs that the patient should get. Yeah. So it was very personalized based on like the type of tumor and how that and that person. And so this kind of allowed her to apply drugs that would have the largest effect on the actual patient. Yeah. She must have seen prior to this that people were responding differently mm -hmm. to the same drug or like different cancers respond very differently to different drugs or, yeah yeah so that's really neat yeah. that she could even do that yeah i i feel like personalized medicine is one of those big buzzwords now and the fact right. that she was like doing it in the 50 like early 50s is pretty yeah. amazing i feel like now it's sort of associated with like genomics and like mm -hmm. using your genome to yeah. somehow um tell your doctor like what medicines to give you but i think that's still a little yeah Far away, yeah. So in addition to this, she also tested the idea that you could alter the dose and kind of length of therapy to minimize adverse effects and maximize benefits for a specific patient. Yeah. Um, so very personalized, um, being able to just kind of tailor everything so that you had maximum benefit, minimum uh, pain. Because <laughs> yeah. chemotherapy sucks. Yeah. So. And yeah, so this was a revolutionary idea that underlies the concept of precision medicine and personalized medicine yeah. today. She also de developed a non-surgical method to deliver potential drugs to tumors deep within the body. What? So like the rectum, the colon, the cervix, the pancreas, oh, yeah. the kidneys. Um, Your guts. Essentially, she like hooked up a catheter Ugh. and then put the chemotherapy drugs in and then somehow... 
this is non-invasive somehow i'm not <laughs> no, quite I, I think I'll, it means like not cutting someone open yeah. yeah um but she also she learned that what you could do was infuse these drugs through major blood vessels and to mm, get to your kind of more deep deep tumors and she also developed a surgical method to redirect your arteries. What? So that you could inject the chemicals, but it would circulate primarily in the area of interest and not go through your full circulatory system. I wonder, like, was she leading, like, a research team or was she doing this sort of on her own? I think or... she was, I mean, she was, like, the director. Yeah, true. Yeah. So I think she was she, in charge. She was in charge and had, I'm guessing, a lot of Yeah, a lot underlings. of different projects. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of different projects. Cool. Um, she yeah, also so much. I know she. Yeah, she's really. I mean, the more I was reading about this, she just was like the founder of yeah a lot of the ways that anything relating to chemotherapy yeah is pretty much Jane Cookwright's like That's baby. Really cool. Also, during her career, she collaborated with another notable African American female scientist named Jewel Plummer Cobb. Oh, I'm gonna have to look at her. Yeah. at some point. Uh, who is a cell biologist and physiologist. So wow. we're coming for you, Jewel. <laughs> <laughs> we're coming at you. Coming at you. I hope you're ready. <laughs> no one ever is. No one ever is. Also at this time, Jane's work was so well known that President Lyndon B. Johnson appointed her to the National Cancer uh. Advisory Board. During this time, like... Lyndon B. Johnson waged a war on cancer. There was, like, the war on cancer. Yeah. And so there was a bunch of, like, all these different advisory boards um, that popped up. He also put her on the President's Commission on Heart Disease, Cancer, and Stroke. Wow. And oh, my per- God. <laughs> yes. She was on, like, everything. <laughs> and the purpose of these boards were to improve communication between research institutions and hospitals throughout the United States. Yeah. So, like, have everybody talking to everybody else so that... that makes sense. Um they could raise healthcare standards and make sure that everybody had the most cutting edge cancer technology. Even if yeah. you were in like, you know, bumfuck somewhere <laughs> in the United States that your whatever hospital was there, you were still, yeah, even if there wasn't a the lot best. of research going on, you were still getting the knowledge mm-hmm. to like have cancer treatments that were the most up to date. Um, And so trying to get, this kind of network where everybody could get the most cutting edge medical treatment was one of the reasons that she banded together with a group of six other cancer researchers who were all white men. Oh boy. So it was her and six white men who founded the American society of clinical oncology. Wow. And they like met at the Edgewater beach hotel in Chicago and had this big like lunch meeting. That sounds fun. Um, I hope. And I think, I think it was probably a, a relatively, strange sight at that time so this is 1964 wow yeah um april 1964 and in june of 1964 the civil rights act passes yeah so having like a lunch that's like six white men and one african-american woman was probably a not common sight yeah i I wonder i hope they like listened to her and treated her with i mean she was I think she was probably the most famous of these people. Wow. Um, yeah, good for her. And yeah, so they formed the American Society of Clinical Oncology 
which revolutionized clinical care uh, of people with cancer. And it's one of the leading oncology associations in the world. And it has 45,000 <gasps> members. Wow. So it's like a really huge organization that she helped found. And so in a New York Post article in 1967, she had an interview talking about kind of the racial and sexual discrimination that she faced. And she says, I know I'm a member of two minority groups, but I don't think of myself that way. Sure, a woman has to try twice as hard, but racial prejudice, I've met very little of it. Wow, that's kind so, of interesting. Yeah, she, for for whatever reason, because she worked with good people, she was such a powerful lady, Yeah, she was from a dynasty, she, I think, got respect. Yeah. Um. Yeah, maybe working in New York City, too, is part yeah. of it, like a more progressive it's area. It's always very... It's always very interesting. I mean, so much of I feel like people's struggles and like like crazy sexism, as we were like talking about with Bascom, is like during undergrad often. Yeah, right. Um, or grad school. Or grad maybe. school. Her med, med school. I guess it was, yeah. But but it's. Who knows? I feel like they're often when we when they're. The, a lot of the, these women are asked, you know, what their experience was like. Did they face sexism? Mm-hmm. There's, they all kind of say like, eh, whatever, <laughs> like, or it wasn't a big deal yeah. or I don't know. I, I hid behind a screen, but it was fine. Yeah. Like some of it is like they are also a part of their own time. And maybe yeah. that kind of sexism didn't feel like sexism to them and what we see as being really sexist like they didn't or something so i don't know yeah Yeah. um she also worked internationally so like she worked she went to ghana in 1957 and kenya in 1961 to treat cancer patients wow um and then served as the vice president of the african research and medical foundation for a while i know she's everywhere but she also like i guess took like led trips to like china and russia (laughs) but like i could not find a single thing about this it was like the same line in a book yeah what i found about her like all these biographies yeah it has the same like one sentence yeah that they got from like one source probably i I was like that sounds fascinating what (laughs) happened there like why were you going to like siberia (laughs) with groups of people and like can't find anything so we'll never know but (laughs) yeah Yeah. huh so just vacation i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i love going to siberia for vacation yeah so good the coldest of vacations (laughs) (laughs) so wright held many important and prestigious positions that we've kind of already talked about but she also, in 1967, took the position of the associate dean and head of the cancer chemotherapy department um, in NYU Medical College. And when she was at this, when she had this role, she was the highest ranked African-American female physician in the country. Wow. Um, some things said she was the highest ranked African-American physician, men or a woman, man yeah. or a woman in the country. Um, and she was also then the first woman elected president of the New York Cancer Society. Yeah. Wow. Can't stop. Won't stop. Yeah. She must have been like so busy. I know. What is. <laughs> I just try to imagine like what did she do every day? Like was she at work 12 hours a day or was she like. I know. I wanted to. Fi- I tried to find to four. some more personal <laughs> 
The things that I learned I that are like personal things about her are like she liked crime novels. She liked watercolor painting. She liked to swim. Yeah. Um, she had a personal shopper at Saks Fifth Avenue. What? That is so <laughs> badass. <laughs> so like I have a lot of work to do. Just yeah. make oh me look God, fabulous. That's so cool. That is a sign that you've made it. Yeah. <laughs> not the associate dean, no, not no. being on all these like US government Mm-mm. agency things. The personal shopper. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. So in 2011, the American Society of Clinical Oncology created a Jane C. Wright uh, MD Young Investigators Award, Aww, uh, nice. which was given to early career physicians that, quote, are following in her phenomenal footsteps with tenderness towards patient care, with rigor towards scientific investigation, with focus that is always external and always on the patient. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Jane Cook Wright died on February 19th, 2013 at the age of 92, which oh. will be the day after this is posted. Oh, my gosh. I know. I did do it on purpose. I think not. <laughs> so in conclusion, Jane Cook Wright revolutionized cancer research by testing hundreds of drugs for chemotherapy. Yeah. For doing clinical trials on cancer drugs uh, in a very systematic way. And for personalizing cancer treatment by testing drugs on a patient's own cultured tumor cells to oh, get man. the best results. Amazing. So she was very innovative. Yeah. And like so much of what we do with chemotherapy is based on the work that she she and her father yeah. did. Yeah. How how involved was he in like making all the chemotherapy drugs? Do you know? It's really hard to say. So like a lot of the research they did in like their big paper on Mexo the yeah right. the one the folic acid antagonist uh-huh. drug came out the year af- uh the year before he died okay so it's hard to say kind of how much he was still like the person in charge but it's, ha- it's hard to say how much he was actually involved at that point yeah um yeah i would like to have known a little bit more about like their dynamic and yeah. <laughs> the division of labor of like when she kind of took over work wise. Yeah. I'm curious if they would talk about their work all the time at home. Yeah. I mean, I guess she probably wasn't living with him at that point. No, but I don't think so. Yeah. She was probably living with her hubby. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's Jane Cook Wright. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. She's super accomplished. I know. That's inc- like the fairy godmother how do people do it? of <laughs> Of Cinderella this, yeah. therapy. Yeah. Chemorella. Chemorella. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like the worst thing ever to be making puns about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's not make ca- cancer puns. I was like, yeah, there's not a lot of fun intro questions for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's okay. They can't all be laugh riots. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every other episode we know is a laugh riot. Yeah, but, but sometimes it's inappropriate for be it to be a laugh riot. Uh, yeah, but yeah, she's awesome. She just ruled ruled the world. Yeah, hell yeah. But they didn't know her name. I see her all the time on lists of historical women. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I see her all the time. Did you <laughs> yeah. get that checked out? Yeah. You're like uh, in real life. <laughs> I see famous people. <laughs> I see Jane Cook, right? <laughs> what a specific ghost to see a lot. Uh, all right, all moving right. on. Moving right. on. 
We have to just keep moving right it. along. Mm-mm. Work, 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 work. All right. Now we've got our women who work section for you. <laughs> uh, this is where we talk about women in science today making herstory. <laughs> herstory. I don't pronounce things all the time. Like, uh, I feel like I'm a little mumbly. Yeah, that's a nice sound. <laughs> okay. So, shout out this week goes to, I can't roll my R's, Amelia Huerta Sanchez from Brown University and Rory Rolfs from San Francisco State University, who led a team of researchers in a search, uh, in the search for forgotten women of population genetics. What does that mean? Okay, so this was published in uh, the journal Genetics on February 1st, and essentially, um, these two professors are population geneticists, and they watch hidden figures, and they were like, you know, I wonder if there are forgotten women of our field. Oh. Like, people who contributed to our field that, you know, aren't a- authors or big names that we hear all the time. Mm-hmm. And one of them had remembered reading a paper and in the acknowledgments there they acknowledged a woman for doing all of the compute computation and programming and so she was like i wonder how common that is mm-hmm. in our field and they decided to study it mm-hmm. so they um so yeah they had noticed that in older papers in their field of population genetics almost all of the authors were men and um, however, often you would see women's names in the acknowledgments, especially for computing and programming, which are things you would earn authorship for today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so their team looked at over 900 papers Jeez. from the journal Theoretical Population Biology, spanning the years 1970 when the journal was founded to 1990. And they essentially just marked down authors, like who they were, um, like their names, and then the names of people acknowledged in papers, and mm-hmm. then researched, you know, which names come up again and again, which names are female or male. They just used a binary yeah. um, system. And, yeah, the overall they found that 42% of acknowledged programmers were women while only 7% of authors were women in over 900 papers so women were there contributing to science mm-hmm. in almost equal numbers as men but they're not getting authorship well especially like there's such a problem with like math yeah. And the numbers of women in like more math fields. Right. But it's like we've been here always. We've just just nobody knows their names because they're these hidden figures, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They're in the background. They're mm-hmm. not acknowledged or held up in the same way that men are, essentially. Yeah. Um and like the work that they were doing was was no joke. It yeah. wasn't like this mindless kind of math. Like they had to know um computational hardware and they had to have a strong foundation in mathematics it wasn't just like two plus two equals four again and again or something um yeah and they 
They found that the percent of acknowledged women programmers decreased as programming transitioned to a male-dominated field, (laughs) which is because um, they say it's likely that newer programmers were male PhD students Mm -hmm. and postdocs who would get authorship. Of course. And the number of females, uh, women getting, um, the number of female authors increased, but not significantly over those 20 years. So it increased maybe like one or 2%. That's crazy. Yeah. So essentially like the number of people being acknowledged seemed to decrease. Mm -hmm. And most of those people were, or a lot of those people were women. Yeah. So just fewer women were did start working in the field, I guess, at some point. Yeah. yeah. Maybe because they weren't getting acknowledgement. Yeah. I think part of it was like, you know, they talked to a few women who they found were acknowledged multiple times. Mm-hmm. And often it was just like there wasn't anywhere forward for them in that yeah. career. Like they couldn't get a PhD or something or... Um, They just didn't know that was really an option for them, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So probably wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) In particular, there is one woman who was acknowledged multiple times, Margaret Wu, who she was acknowledged in a paper that has been cited over 3,400 times. All right. And it's... um, a lot of times. In this paper, she essentially helped create what is called Watterson's Estimator. Have you ever heard of that? No. Which I guess is still today widely used as an estimator of genetic diversity. Oh, okay. I'm like, how have I never yeah. heard of it? But um, it, but it's named after the sole author of the paper, G.A. Watterson. Mm, I've heard of Tajima's D. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Big D. <laughs> um so and they discussed a couple other careers from from a few women that were acknowledged more than once okay. um so it seems like there were women in this field contributing you know not on just one study yeah. but multiple and their names are just like have been unknown for this 40 years 50 years almost um, and the paper also discusses who, how authorship in academia can be gender biased, especially in collaborative papers, because of gender biases in academic roles. Mm-hmm. Like most tech or a lot of technicians are women, yeah, or um, or other minorities even, and they're not acknowledged. While multiple male PIs who may have contributed you know, funding or ideas, but not necessarily um, labor to the experiments are all going to be on a paper. So it makes it seem like there are more men in this field than women. Mm -hmm. But women are there, they're just not necessarily being acknowledged in the same way. And so they discuss like how important it is for us to maybe consider like how we acknowledge people and um, who we give authorship to and maybe have more like stringent rules for that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought it was a really cool yeah, study. That's awesome. That's yeah. great that they went and took the time to it's, go back. And yeah, I think it's so important to like women and, you know, minorities have been in science for a yeah. very long time. They've just not gotten the credit due. And I think shining a light on that is really motivational for people who are interested. 
Yeah. And maybe don't think, like, especially if you're like, want to go into math or statistics and it's like it's a very male-dominated field yeah and it seems like it's always been a male-dominated field it's like no women have been here yeah we've just not been acknowledged so right you can do it you should do it and yeah you got this <laughs> you got it <laughs> you, you can do it, it. <laughs> don't give up and it's just such a creative way mm-hmm. to like find those yeah. names yeah. like i would have never thought to look in the acknowledgements yeah. to see who these women are like uh, learn about them yeah acknowledgements should just be called <laughs> ladies that we don't respect enough to give authorship also to. men there it was 58 percent no. men you know no they... <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> just saying they were more represented yeah, yeah. in acknowledgements than in authorship yeah. right so <laughs> <laughs> Very but what's funny is like then I read the acknowledgments of this paper and I was like, okay, it's about fifty. I was like thinking about it, like, like are you not giving credit? <laughs> who did the who did the statistics for this paper? <laughs> but I'm they sure. do acknowledge a former grad student from our department, really, and the person that I teched for at UC oh, Davis. So wow, I was like, it's a That's small cool. world, yeah. Nice. Anyway, I I did some field work for someone and. I was there with two other dudes, two dudes. I'm not a dude, two dudes. <laughs> so the grad student had the like us three helping him. Yeah. And they both get acknowledgments in the paper and I do not. What the hell? What's going on? That's just completely erasing you from history. But I feel erased. Stop erasing us. <sighs> we will revolt. <laughs> a good way to end the yeah. podcast we will revolt we will revolt, revolt. <laughs> this is not a catchy revolt. chant okay so that's been our podcast right <laughs> yeah our podcast is over yeah um so if you like this podcast <laughs> if you like what we do please rate review subscribe share it with a friend post it on twitter this month if you um write yeah. us a review on itunes it's super helpful you're giving us love Fe- for February. We're going to give you love and yeah. send you uh, a sticker. Stickers. So you just have to, if you're going to do that, write us a review. Send us a screenshot of the review and an address, and we'll send you a sticker to yeah. our email, stemvitalpod at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. So thanks. So thanks also to Caitlin for our awesome art that will be on that sticker, sticker. that you could get. <laughs> and uh, to I Artichoke just keep for saying, our... like, one word. <laughs> sticker! <laughs> Uh, an artichoke for our theme music. music. And as always, <laughs> go, go stimulate yourself. And a friend. Oh, no. <laughs> By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the and science was